The gift has become an opportunity for us to give back to God during the season of Advent and Christmas. Our fellowship family has developed a culture of generosity, believing that through the leadership of the Holy Spirit and in obedience to God, our resources can be used to make a difference locally, regionally, and globally. Last year, the people of fellowship gave over $600,000 to the gift, which was prayerfully dispersed by the elders to many worthy ministry causes. Throughout the month of December, you will once again have the opportunity to express generosity and gratitude through the gift. Your participation allows our elders to invest strategically in ministries all over the world, potentially including Fellowship Bentonville. You can make your donation online or through special gift envelopes available as you exit our worship centers. Thank you for your continued generosity and the difference you are making in the lives of so many. Incarnate 
evening, Mosaic. Oh, come on. Good evening, Mosaic. How are you tonight? Hey, if you're online, good to see you. If you're here, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Hey, two truths uh, that we need to remember tonight. First and foremost, if you're new, you're welcome here. We'd love to get to know you. Please uh, don't hesitate to connect with us, whether that's online or here. Secondly, a little known fact about myself. Hi, my name's Colin. Second truth, I should never ride a mountain bike. Um, if you're familiar with me and my story at all, I was about six weeks ago in an accident that truly uh, shattered my body, and it is good to be back in here with you. First time on the platform. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and uh, I have been, can I just take a little bit of time to start tonight? Uh, my wife, Erin, and I have been so overwhelmed by your um, love and your mercy and the way that you shine Jesus to me. And so can we, rather than applauding for me, would you just go ahead and applaud for the body in this room? Um, come on. Uh, if, if you're new, this is a group of followers of Jesus who truly care for one another like he does, and I'm really grateful. Uh, hey, a few things uh, to note tonight. First and foremost, uh, as we already talked about the gift, if you're looking for a really great way um, to, to apprentice Jesus with your finances in this season, or, or maybe to embrace the spirit of generosity that the Holy Spirit places in us, I'd encourage you, the gift is a great way to get active in joining Jesus and what he's doing, both locally, internationally, and, and across the globe. Uh, secondly, we have another exciting thing coming our way, which is our elder nominations. If you wouldn't mind, go ahead and take a look at this video. Over the next month, members of fellowship will have the opportunity to nominate new elders to our elder board. In our church governance structure, the elder board is made up of godly men who make critical and significant decisions on behalf of our church body. We are not a church with elders. We are a church led by elders. The nomination and recognition process are very important to the health of our church family. And we ask that you enter into this season prayerfully. Here is what we are asking members of fellowship to do. First, please pray for the elder nomination process and discern whether you should nominate someone to the office of elder. Second, if you do have a nomination, please visit fellowshipnwa.org forward slash elder nomination and complete the online form. Read the accompanying document entitled Qualifications of an Elder before making your nomination. Or if you prefer a paper nomination form, you may pick one up at the information desk located in the worship center foyer at each campus. The nomination form will be attached to the qualification of an elder document. Please mail paper nominations to the church office on the Rogers campus to the attention of the elders. The deadline for making a nomination is December 22nd. Please pray for your elders as we initiate the recognition of new elders. Finally, we would like to thank John Dyer and Doug Walker for their many years of faithful service as elders. They have done a phenomenal job of representing you and the Lord well during their tenure. When you see them, thank them for their service and thank you for your participation and help.
not been an easy time to be a human being. <laughs> uh, much less, it has not been an easy time to be an elder of Fellowship Bible Church. A lot of decisions weekly that they are making, and can we just take a second and give our elders a big thank you and an applaud, because they've led us well, right? Incredible. And as Mickey just said so well, our elders exist as spiritual leaders for this church, and Jesus defines a spiritual leader as a servant. And uh, if there's someone who you believe in this body who needs to step into that role for us as Mosaic Fellowship, who would fill that well, please, we'd encourage you, take the time to pray and nominate. And lastly, tonight we are kicking off with the Advent season. Any kiddos excited for Christmas? Come on, right? Any parents excited for Christmas? That's all right. We are pumped. Uh, tonight we'll enter into this season uh, where we celebrate the coming of Christ. And uh, hopefully if you have uh, a family with kiddos, uh, you've received an Advent packet as you walked out. And uh, there's a lot of great resources in this season. Um, but just to encourage you, there, there's kind of four things that, that my wife and I are, are pushing our boys as well as ourselves to remember this Advent season. First and foremost, the Advent means the coming of Christ, the appearing. So the first one is that Christ has come, which is really good news. Secondly, we don't wanna just rest on the fact that he came, he also came and Christ was buried. He died for the sins of the world, but not just there, Christ is risen is the third sentence my boys are memorizing. And lastly, the hope that comes along with that is that Christ will come again. And it's in this season tonight where our world is in need of some mending, isn't it? And it's in the season that we look back to the past of what Jesus coming to this world meant, that he's bringing healing. And as we look back, we not only remember, but we also let that inspire us here in the present, that we can live with hope and joy and peace and love as we expectantly wait for the future return of our divine master and friend. And so, friends, as we kick off this Advent season tonight, beginning with my dear friend Nick Rowland, who will walk us through Matthew bringing hope. Would you stand with us? And would you read aloud with me this prayer in this Advent season? Oh Lord, our God, hope of the world, we need you. We face dark nights of discouragement and despair in this life. Sometimes we can feel like we are lost at sea in the dead of night. And sometimes we can feel like the storms of life threaten to overwhelm us. This is good news, friends, say it loud. The advent of Christ renews our hope, for you have come. You are near to us. Your hope is bright like a star that guides us home. Your hope shines like a lighthouse on heaven's shore. You arrive to bear the deepest night on the cross for us. King Jesus, light of the world, thank you for coming, for you our hope.
God who bends to bless us with an unrelenting love.
On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus told his disciples to do one thing until he comes again. That the body and the blood of Christ would be taken together amongst believers until the day he returns. And in this space, we celebrate this. We look back to the first coming of Christ, light of the world. And we put all of our hope in life and in death in this Jesus. That he will come again. And in the meantime, this is what we do. As body believers, as a church, this is what we do to remind ourselves of the hope we have in Christ. So please take this opportunity to eat and drink. Remember him. Christ 
Jesus, we lift you up high in this place. All of our gratitude for you. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into
you can be seated. Matthew 12:18 through 21. Here is my servant whom I am chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. pray. Jesus, we are so humbled and grateful to be able to worship you. We praise you for your sacrifice, for giving everything, your very life. You are our living hope. Prepare our hearts for your word, and this week, May your hope overflow from us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You know, our, our family got to this week just exhausted from a crazy fall unlike anything we'd ever experienced, and we felt that we really needed to just unwind. And so one night, my wife and I did like the obvious thing that you need to do when you need rest and peace. We rented a zombie movie. And so what was really bizarre about the experience as, besides the fact that it's a zombie movie, is as we're sitting here watching this movie and, and we're watching the, them put up the maps of the world with case numbers multiplying and projections of how quickly this thing is going to spread and all the things they're going to do to contain it, Something felt eerily and oddly familiar. And I had a totally new perspective watching the zombie apocalypse on 2020. And I understood what we had just been through. And as, as I, we were thinking about this question of Advent, and I was asking the Mosaic team about what, what, they, what they wanted the next four weeks to look like for this congregation. They said the simplicity at the end of 2020 of really coming back to where clarity, this year-long study, began of looking back at Jesus, of all the questions that have been posed this year and all the solutions that have been thrown out, what would it look like to say, well, Jesus is our hope, our peace, our joy, and our source of love? And as I was reflecting on that question of, of where hope comes from, uh, I, was, I was just going through scriptures, looking through some passages, and, and uh, was brought back to the book of Isaiah, to a, a nation that was 
experiencing a devastating time of their own. You see, it was the 8th century BC, 2,800 years ago, 2,700 years ago, and Israel was divided, split in two, and the country had been completely shattered. It was a shell of what it once had been. It had been born with this promise of glory, this hope of what a nation shaped by God could look like. And yet those dreams, that dream that was called Israel was flickering out. They had been completely corrupted from the inside out. Their rulers were not trustworthy people. They did not honor the Lord. There was no justice in Israel. There was no faithfulness to God. And threats emerged everywhere. If you lived in Israel at this time, this is what the world news headlines looked like. To the north and west, the Greeks were beginning to develop a culture that was threatening. To, to the north and the east, you had the Assyrians, the Persians, the Babylonians. And to the south and the west, you had the Egyptians. And right in the middle of these mega armies, that you hear about each one vying for power, each one a threat to the other, each one calculating how to conquer the world, is this little, struggling, broken nation called Israel. And the biggest question they had is, which one is it gonna be? Which empire is gonna swoop in and crush us? And if that happens, what does that say about the dream that was Israel? What does that say about the kingdom of God that we were supposed to experience here as all of those dreams come untrue? And then the people in Jerusalem saw the unthinkable happen. The northern half of the kingdom fell, completely wiped out. Nine of the historic tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob, the ones who had been given the promise that God was gonna take the curse of the world and reverse it to blessing to their family. Nine of those tribes decimated and lost. And one prophet, a man named Isaiah, he sat at the front of the northern kingdom's destruction and now on the backside, he looks south to Jerusalem to the tribes that remain and he's trying to offer them hope. And so he wrote a few poems. And in the poems, he starts to talk about a servant of the Lord. And as you read through these servant songs, many times they seem to be talking about Israel itself. Apparently Israel is the servant of the Lord that God is gonna use. But as these servant songs unfold, what you recognize is the servant can't be Israel because this servant is gonna rescue Israel. So the question emerges, who is this servant who comes from Israel who is gonna be the hope of Israel? Who is this person that Isaiah is pointing to? Because Isaiah lets them in on a hint. Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, it's going to happen to you too. You are going to be destroyed. And then a servant will come. Let's just take a look at one of these servant songs, these servant poems in Isaiah Chapter 42, this is what Isaiah wrote 
to give hope in the face of coming destruction. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Now, if you're living in Israel at this time and you've just seen Assyria wipe out your brothers up north and you don't know if it's gonna be Assyria or Babylon or Persia that's gonna come destroy you, the idea of an Israelite servant bringing justice to the nations sounds like really good news. But then we read on. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Think about 2020 as a a tiny little picture of what a society kind of going crazy looks like. Now imagine the deliverer who does not shout, who does not cry out, who does not raise his voice in the streets. Jerusalem would have been filled with people in the streets shouting and crying out. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now think about that imagery, a bruised reed. We're talking like if you see a little reed growing that's a little bit bent, this person will be so gentle that he would not even break an already damaged plant. Think about the effort it takes to put this candle out. I've seen the effort it takes to light one in a room like this when the vent is blowing right down on it. The effort it would take to break a small reed or to snuff out a candle, the servant who is going to bring justice to the nations will be so gentle that he wouldn't break a reed, he wouldn't snuff out a flickering candle. Isaiah says, in faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Now, wait a minute. Who are the islands? Now, you might not be an expert in ancient Israelite geography. There are no islands in Israel. In fact, Israelites knew nothing of the seas. Can you think of stories in the Old Testament of Old Testament Jews going out in the ocean or the sea? There's only one of them. What's his name? Jonah and Noah before Israel is found. Jonah is the only Israelite who ever gets on a boat. How did that end for Jonah? Not well. As far as they are concerned in Old Testament Israel, the the sea line is the end of the world. Like we don't go out there. So when you say the islands, you're talking about the unimaginable reaches of the earth. As a kid, we, whenever I wanted to say something really, really far away, I'd always say, I mean, that's going to Timbuktu. Now I actually know someone who lives near Timbuktu, and I'm like, oh, it's a real place. I know where it is on a map now. But that was the place you would describe to say just as far as you can possibly go. 
you would say the, the, the islands. Think about the ridiculousness of this statement. You have a tiny little country about to fall apart, surrounded by the empires of the world, the greatest power and might and strength, and Isaiah says a servant's going to come who's going to be so gentle, he will use no force, no power, and he's going to bring justice to the ends of the earth. And those islands are going to put their hope into his teachings. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spread out the earth with all, with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people. To, to what people does God give breath to? The people of the earth. It is as if Isaiah is saying, Israel, get your eyes off of yourself for a minute. And remember the God who created the heavens of the earth, the heavens and the earth, the God who gives breath to everyone on earth, that's the God you worship. And he has a plan that is even bigger than you. Who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you. And I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for whom? The Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. You see this theme over and over again in the Old Testament prophets, where here is Israel, suffering and scared, there is the neighbor who's about to crush them, and God says, when are you going to save us from those evil people? And God goes, no, 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 I'm really excited to save those evil people. And it confuses them every time. And that's what he does right here in Isaiah 42. When Israel feels small and frail and weak in the face of strength and power and violence, God says, I'm going to send this wonderful, gentle servant who's going to rescue those violent people. And he's going to be the source of their hope. Now, we got to talk about this word hope uh, because the way we use the word hope in English in America is completely different from the way it's used in the Bible. Okay, when, when we say hope today, what we really mean is wish, right? Like, I hope I get this for Christmas. Or this was like what defined my entire childhood. I hope we get a snow day this winter. I mean, kids and grownups, that matter, uh, go there with me. Picture that moment when the sun has gone down and you see the flakes begin to fall. Now, at, at, when I was in elementary and middle school, I became an expert at understanding how long it had to be what temperature for the ground to be cold enough for snow to, to stick. Suddenly, in this moment of my life, science mattered a whole lot. And I would watch the news. I would watch that little bar across the bottom of the screen, waiting to see Springdale Public Schools closed, show up. All of my hope was fixed on the promise of a snow day. And I would put all my eggs in that basket because I'd stay up till midnight or one o'clock in the morning, waiting to see Springdale Public Schools show up on that screen. So if I was going to school, I was toast the next day. 
You see, that's how we use the word hope. I really hope this happens. I wish this would happen. There's some future thing that would bring relief to the unfair, cruel, and unusual punishment of school. And I am wishing for that future thing to bring relief. It was a shock to my system as an adult to find out teachers looked forward to snow days too. But you see, that kind of hope is not biblical hope. Biblical hope looks more like this. Even though I wished for a snow day, you know what I started doing about the second day of school? Calculating the number of days till Christmas break. And I would set my hope on Christmas break. I would know it is coming. It is on the way. Now that's a different kind of hope, isn't it? You see, when I hope for Christmas vacation, it is certain. It is an event in the future that I know is coming, and that certain event allows me to endure the difficult circumstance that I'm in right now called school. You see, when the Bible talks about hope, it doesn't give us a wish. It doesn't give us some dream that we'll wait and see if it happens. When the Bible talks about hope, it gives us a promise of a certain future event that is going to change everything. You see, biblically, hope is not what you wish for, it's what you wait for. It's that moment you look for out ahead of you that you know is going to change everything. And what Isaiah is doing here for for Israel is he is giving them their hope, the coming of the servant who's going to bring justice on earth. That is your hope. Not only is it the hope for you, Israel, it's gonna be the hope for the entire world. And so Israel started waiting. They started looking. Fast forward 700 years. And would you believe that Israel's still waiting? Uh, they've, They've been broken. They've had their temple and their walls burned down. They've been shipped off to another land and come back and they've rebuilt. But none of the glories returned. All the problems that were there 700 years ago are still there. The glory of God never came back to the temple like it did in the stories they heard as they, when they were kids. The stories about Solomon praying and fire coming down and filling, the smoke filling the temple. The stories of Moses the stories of Abraham, the stories of God walking with his people. Here they are 700 years after Isaiah and none of that's happened. And they're told it would. And to make matters worse, they're still living under the threat of a big scary enemy called Rome. And you know what happens every time someone in Israel tries to stand up to Rome? They get crucified, literally strung up and hung publicly to die. And the question of the day is what is it going to take for God to keep his promise? And would you believe it? You know what happened? The people divided and fought over it. The entire nation split in three because they're going, God promised he was going to do it. He hasn't done it. So who has the answer to set our country right again? And there were three camps. You want to hear what they were? There's one group of people who they were kind of the elite class. And they said, you know what? Rome's in charge. The best we can do is to play nice with Rome. Let's not create any trouble. Let's try to be friends. 
And then there was another group of people who said, the problem with Israel is Israel. The temple's corrupt, the leadership's corrupt. We need to go out and live in a desert. And when we become the true Israel out in a cave, then God will come back and rescue just us and leave the rest of Israel behind. This group of people were called the Essenes and they went and lived in a place called Qumran. You ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? That was these people. But there was a middle group and you know what that middle group said? They said, God will come back when Israel keeps the law perfectly. In fact, they thought, man, if we could just, as a nation, have one day where we kept the law perfectly, God would come back. And so those people made it their business to watch everyone in Israel to make sure that they were keeping all the rules, that they were eating all the right foods, that they were doing all the right ceremonies, giving their tithe, their giving exactly like they were supposed to, washing their hands exactly the perfect way, and resting on the Sabbath day exactly like they were supposed to. Now, in New, in New Testament times, we tend to really hate these people. They're the bad guys sitting in the corner that always have a black cloak and a pointy black beard. And whenever you draw their words in a comic book, they're always squiggly and scraggly and look like they're grumbling, right? We call them the Pharisees. These are the big bad guys, right? But I think we need to remember what the Pharisees were about. They weren't just mean for the sake of being mean. They were desperate to see God do something. And they really believed that if we could keep all the rules perfectly, God would come back and heal the nation. And so you know what it meant when somebody broke the rules? They were destroying their hope. You see, they weren't just like the obsessive compulsive person who needs everything perfect just for the sake of it. Their hope was riding on keeping the rules. Because it was only when we kept all the law perfectly that God was going to come back. And so, 700 years later, Jesus really annoyed those people. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus shows up to one of their synagogues, the places where they have teaching. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 9, we read this. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there, a man who, who couldn't use his hand at all. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, you might think that they're just trying to find some obscure, weird thing, but when you understand what they cared about, this was really important to them. They needed to see, Jesus, we have an agenda to bring Israel back to glory. Are you going to be a part of our party? Are you gonna get on board with our reform system to make Israel glorify God? Jesus, is it right? Is it lawful? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, look at what Jesus is already doing. He's flipping their question upside down. They ask the question, is it lawful? 
And Jesus wants to talk about, is it good? They're talking about how to keep the right rules. Jesus has the question, is a person not more valuable than a sheep? Jesus talks about goodness and value. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. You see, we often assume that the Pharisees are just threatened by his, his attention and his glory, but I think it's so much deeper than this. They are threatened because they genuinely believe he is destroying their hope. That Jesus is undermining everything they are trying to do to fix the problem. And they are so blinded by their misplaced hope that they don't recognize he just healed a guy. Like, what are they waiting for? They are waiting for God to come back to Israel and heal their land. And what is Jesus right there doing? He's walking into their synagogues, healing their people. They have got their hope so narrowly fixed on their political plans to heal the nation that they miss when God walks in among them and starts healing them. And so they say, he has to go. But look at what happens in verse 15. Aware of this, meaning Jesus is aware of their plan to kill him, Jesus withdrew from that place. Uh, do you think Jesus left because he was scared? Does Jesus strike you as the coward who runs and hides anytime there's something dangerous happening? It says later on, a, a large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. He went on doing the healing. He didn't stop doing the good he came to do. But he said, hey, let's, let's stay quiet about this. What is Jesus doing? Notice, in the face of violence and conflict, Jesus says, no, I don't need to take that fight on. When there's the opportunity to spread the word and shout in the streets what he's doing, he's saying, no, 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 you don't, you don't need to go talk about it. I'm just gonna keep doing what I do and let's keep it quiet. And then we read, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not stuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. God promised a servant. God promised a servant who would restore and heal the nation in such a way that he would turn everything upside down so that the nation that before was broken and abused by the nations would become the hope of the nations. But he said he would do it in a surprising and unexpected way. He wouldn't send a powerful speaker who could out-argue every other view. 
He wouldn't send a military commander that could kill every enemy. Do you remember what happens to people in Israel who threaten Rome? They get crucified. You see, the cross was the final picture of hopelessness and despair in Israel. And what did the servant of the Lord come to do? Came to die on a cross. He came to suffer the fate that Israel was destined for so that he could rescue Israel and everyone else. And when Jesus did this, he wasn't just accomplishing justice, he was also showing us how justice works. You see, it's really tempting in the face of a year like 2020 to make a lot of noise, isn't it? The most obvious, natural human response to injustice is physical violence and a lot of noise. And it would be really easy to get our eyes fixed on our personal plans for hope and miss the hope of nations right among, our, among ourselves, doing the work he always does. He doesn't shout out, doesn't draw a lot of attention to himself, but he is faithful to finish what he started. So in this Advent season, we're doing an exercise where we, we put ourselves, the whole month is about putting ourselves back in the shoes of waiting for that baby to be born. Being like Israel, who had the promise of a coming servant, waiting for him to come so that we can remember what it is to wait. Because guess what? We're still waiting. We're waiting for him to come again. So to be a people with hope, we need to be a people who learn to wait. Who learn to wait on our Lord and to put all of our hope in him. Because hope is not what you wish for. It's what you wait for. So as you go up from here, two questions I want us to pray through over this coming week. First, what wishes have you put in the place of hope? How have you focused on what you're wishing for rather than what you're waiting for? How have you taken some idea that you are convinced when I have this, it will make everything better and fixed all of your hope on getting that instead of waiting for Jesus? And then the other side of that question, how does Jesus promise to bring how does what Jesus promises to bring address your current area of need? I would encourage you during this Advent season to take that to him in prayer. Discuss those questions in, in community and in your household and your families as we learn to wait for the hope of nations again. So as we, as we go up from here, Colin's gonna come up and, and, uh, and lead us in a little prayer a benediction and a blessing as we go out from here and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author of our hope. Thanks, Nick. Hey, so if you are not plugged in with a group of faithful disciples with Jesus to do life together with, um, we'd love to connect with you and to get you plugged in.
Or maybe in this season, uh, you are taking the time to really press into your family or your roommates for that. We'd encourage you, take these questions, take this time. Don't lose the hope we have in the season. And as you know, there are a lot of areas of need in our world, in our nation, in our city, and in our souls, right? And we have the opportunity as Christians to go and take this hope and to make it realized not only within us, but within our city. And so, family, if you would, would you stand as we hear now from the word of the Lord to close our time together? As Paul writes to the church in Rome, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mosaic family, we love you so much. Grace and peace to you. If you're online, we miss you. Go ahead and leave us some comments. Let us know how we can pray for you. If you're here, if you wouldn't mind exiting out the side doors, let's go make some disciples this week. We love you, Mosaic.